Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome back to another episode of the Goblin Lore Podcast. This is actually going to be part two of our psychographics episode. We finished up part one, uh, Alex and I talking uh, a lot more kind of about the five psych psychographics. Theoretically, Wizards has called them three psychographics and two ascetics. Um, we kind of started at least last week talking about how we have all of them in the same category. Well, huh, we have them all in the same area, which was funny because we moved from this discussion of what these are as categories versus maybe spectrums that people might fall on. Um, so we're going to be getting to that in a couple of minutes and then moving into our real world topic about personality characteristics. But first, I am joined by Chris um, at Harmless Offer and on Twitter, who is here to talk about kind of something that he's been wanting to do. So he uh, reached out to me uh, and brought up this idea, and we've kind of been working on it for a while around another chance at a goblin deck. But I want him to really get a chance to talk about why he did this and why he reached out. So Chris, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. This is a real honor, and uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about this. Um, so yeah, my name is Chris. Uh, I am at Harmless Offer on Twitter. Um, Harmless Offering is the full name, but the handle doesn't fully fit. And, and it's a great card. Yes, it is. I mean, that's what and, I was going to say. Yeah, like I just, yeah, that's my type of magic right there. Just give things away. I love the idea of it. And that is kind of what really inspired this. Uh, that card, the name of the program, and it really is more of a program rather than it just being me. The whole idea behind Harmless Offering is to get decks into people's hands so that more people can play the game. Because one thing that we've been talking about a lot with Match the Gathering over the last, I don't know, 20 years <laughs> is, the, <laughs> is the cost of entry into the game. And I started playing around like Cold Snap, original Ravnica block, and then I dropped off for a bunch of years. Uh, because I didn't find the competitive aspect of the game to be super enticing. And I was noticing that I was spending a lot of money on it and not really enjoying it as much as I could. But then back right before Amonkit came out, a good friend of mine introduced me to Commander. And this whole idea of you can play pretty much whatever you want, and it's super flavorful. And it brought me right back into the game. And I've been playing pretty constantly since I'm on kit block. And uh, most specifically, Commander, I've, I tried to dip my toe into modern, but it was just a bit too much for me. Uh, but his generosity, he, he's been playing uh, since before when I originally came in. And he has this massive card pool. And he has uh, pretty much given me cards to build my own decks. And we have created this joint collection of cards between the two of us uh, that we just pretty much pass cards back and forth. And what I want to do is kind of take that idea of a shared card pool and take it even further into the community and just start giving decks away. partially. Because I can't keep building decks for myself. I don't want to have an entire <laughs> room in my house dedicated to decks. And I'm sure my wife wouldn't either. You, you can't pull off the, uh, this is all for my kids. I'm just getting the decks ready for them. Yeah, no. <laughs> That's uh, fair. Right now, I've got three decks for my kids. And, awesome. uh, and I personally have, I just finished my Traxos deck for my Colorist deck. But what I've decided for my personal collection is to just have one of each color pairing. Okay. And then that's where I'm going to sit it for me. But my favorite part of magic, at least right now, is brewing and building decks. And so I came across the card Harmless Offering, and I'm like, you know what? There's a lot of content creators out there that are doing really amazing things. But I don't see people, and I've seen a lot of like giveaways and stuff. But I don't see a lot of people just kind of giving away decks. And that just sounds like so much fun. The whole idea of I get to build something 
kind of get out of my own space of what I would want to play and try and build something that someone else would want to play. And then not only build and brew that deck, but also uh, give that deck and get that deck into someone's hands so that they can play with it. And so that's really the idea behind Harmless Offering is to make Commander more accessible and make Magic in general more accessible while scratching that brewing itch that I love so much. I really like that kind of that, that element of um, simplicity in the sense of like, well, I the element I like is building and brewing. I might not get to play with these decks, but I also don't need to keep accruing more and more. And when I have the resources and you're, you know, like you're saying, you're able to do something like this and to give back and have the shared card pool to make this possible. It, it serves a purpose of letting you get that creativity going. And as you said, I think we've talked about this on the show when we had um, Daquan on, like the accessibility piece to magic. It's it's always been an issue. I mean, I've, I've been playing since original Mirrodin block, maybe about four or five months earlier. So it was still kind of the end of uh, what onslaught. So somewhere around there, um, I, I learned from friends just handing me cards and giving me decks to play with so that I could join in and then build up my collection slowly over that. And I think what you're talking about, like a, I came across Commander in 2009. Wow. Um, and part of what drew it to me was this idea that, you know, I did like competitive at times, but with all the rotating formats and modern wasn't even a thing yet you had to have four of every card. And I had these just singletons lying around and it gave me a chance to get to play them again. And it's, I mean, that's one of the things that I've always loved about it. Yeah. The singleton, the singleton nature for me is really big as well, simply because, uh, I, um, love variance in games and the fact that I could build a deck that has a hundred cards in it and it very possibly could not, play the same way twice when i'm building decks for myself i almost never run tutors mm -hmm. because part of what i love is top decking i want to see what that <laughs> next card is yep. and see what it can do to impact this game that's awesome yeah like really like that kind of uh do you like to do the called shots then just to pretend like you're somebody like gabriel nasif and rip cruel ultimatum off the top of decks and I haven't I haven't had enough of a chance to build that in most <laughs> okay. of my decks. Okay. Uh, I play a lot of one v one with my with my buddy, yeah. um, just due to scheduling things. But like, if I had the chance to like get to know my decks that well, I probably would do things like that. <laughs> um, but I have actually at in in one of the times I was able to play multiplayer, I actually was like, "Hey guys." I have most of the pieces for this combo in my hand. Will you let me get to my next turn so I can draw this and see what happens? And it <laughs> happened. <laughs> what combo was it? Uh, it was uh, it was in my Zancha deck, which is my black red deck. When and the whole idea behind that deck that I have is to, uh, it's kind of a group slug deck where everyone loses life everyone is discarding cards and then I'm just giving away my commander mm -hmm. and uh, I don't remember the name of the card, but it's the one when, when you play a card, you lose life. And I was just trying to get it off. I don't remember what all the details were. Cause that was literally almost a year ago now, <laughs> but I got, I got it to go off and I still lost the game, but I didn't care. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. It's the story. It's the journey. It's, it's not the actual end point. Yes, and that for me is one of the big things about Commander is as long as I'm able to play a few cards and everyone else is kind of getting their engine going, like, that's a great Commander game for me. Awesome. Well, Chris, you reached, you reached out to me, um, and it's been a while now. One of the reasons was we had talked about waiting for Zendikar, kind of hoping there was going to be some more goblins um, than there actually were. <laughs> but <laughs> I think I did get one in there that... There was one, right? Yeah, Tuck Tuck Rubble Tuck Tuck Rubble Fort, which for those that don't know, um, it's a zero three for three, uh, two generic, one red defender. Reach creatures you control have haste, um, and 
building a goblin deck, the whole idea, I leaned really heavy into flavor on this deck, given that you guys are a Vorthos cast. And the whole idea that all of my goblins are coming out of this rubble fort really quickly just sounded too perfect to pass up for this deck. That, yes, uh, giving goblins haste is a thing that is always appreciated. It is the flavor of them. Like The quicker they can get out and just run into something, that's what we want. So can you tell other... us a little bit about the deck? So the, the whole idea behind the deck, so the general of the deck, the commander, is Kenko Tin, Krenko Tin Street Kingpin, and that is for two and a red legendary creature goblin. Whenever Krenko Tin Street Kingpin attacks, put a plus one plus one counter on it, then create a number of one one red goblin creature tokens equal to Krenko's power. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. the entire idea behind this deck is you just get as many goblins out there as possible and have them do their thing. And uh, working with my buddy, uh, who's got some of the older cards, uh, I've got like, I've got my, uh, I've got Shrieking Mog in there, which is a fun <laughs> one. Um, which is one in a red, haste. When Shrieking Mog comes into play, tap all other creatures. Which, I, I love the idea that uh, with goblins, goblins are incredibly intelligent creatures and they are very strong in numbers. But the idea being that you play this card and it taps everything down. Uh, it just seems so flavorful and fun. <laughs> I I actually do not have a copy of that. Like I'm just looking at that. I'm like, okay, I guess you know that. You know, I could throw it into Grenzo and then just try to like spit out a bunch of stuff from the bottom of Grenzo again. Like if I have enough mana. Yeah. Cool. Um, and another one of my big favorite uh, flavor cards in here is hot soup and this one is much more just the art on it so the art on the card is uh, a goblin carrying a big cauldron of soup through this battle and the flavor text is coming through and, and, and it was, this was one of the cards that was designed by um as part of that set by um people that are not typically magic designers correct i didn't know that oh yeah so he um so he is so it says on it i believe designed by james Ernest, who is a, a, a game designer known as the lead designer for cheap ass games um which is a series of kind of board games out of the seattle area so i think that th there was somebody from there maybe somebody from penny arcade but there was a whole in that in that set there was a bunch of cards that were designed by designers from other games specifically for magic i did not and, and so the the copy i have is from the mystery boosters oh okay yeah so this was when it was um m15 originally oh that's so cool man yeah. now i'm learning something now oh god that that makes this just so much better um another um Another great one is I do have Goblin Game in there. <laughs> because if you're going to play a Goblin deck, you got to have Goblin Game. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only Goblin the deck doesn't have that I was hoping I was going to be able to get my hands on is Squee. But one thing Squee. I'm really hoping... Uh, the, what, my, my, my favorite one is the one from uh, Dominaria. So, I just thought that was... Okay, a so really I was thinking, card. so th this happens to be one of those things where uh, I happen to have random goblins, obviously lying around, and I believe that I have extra copies of Squee. So, one of the things is when you were talking to me about this idea is we wanted to find a way to get this deck into somebody's hands, and we're going to talk about that piece and also hopefully post the deck list in with the thing. But I'm also going to um, throw in some extra goblins, uh, looking through the list to see if there's any that are in my collection. I'm going to want to also just send out. So that the person has oh, kind of a, a place for them, you know, if they want to make some changes out. Because I think that when we've done giveaways on here before of Goblin decks, we've talked about this idea of kind of like, it's a deck that's ready to be played, and we want you to experience it. It also might be a deck that, you know, then you can have extra pieces and start making it your own over time. I mean, I think that's always kind of the nice piece about decks. And having a place to get started, I always think of the pre-cons have always been so good because 
out of the box they play and they play pretty well you can have some fun games with them and then you get to start making them your own and that exploration piece is always great so there are a couple that i was looking at i was like oh i might just send these along too once we get this kind of all situated so oh that makes me so happy because again if i can encourage someone to not only play the game but to brew yeah that makes me super happy too plus it's squee i mean squee is literally one of our favorite characters on the show i have a squee nickel bullis uh art by tappy toe claws um so sydney the cosplayer Uh, i commissioned a piece that's them in the style of calvin and hobbs with Bolus and uh, Squee and Squee's like holding his toy and they're in a cardboard box that says time machine on it. And it's, uh, it was from an episode where we talked about like this, like just oddest pairings that you could have anywhere and like Squee being unable to die. And we had this whole storyline of like Bolus needing something from Squee and they were just traveling together and Bolus keeps killing Squee and Squee continues (laughs) not to die, but is also oblivious and just thinks that he's having like the greatest time with his new best friend. Everything so, about that is makes me yeah. so happy because I, I am also a very big Calvin and Hobbes fan. <laughs> I, uh, I haven't done I it in a while, but with my eldest, I actually built the transmogrifier. Oh, see, so, that, so I will send you um, when I have it. I'll, I'll send you uh, the a photo of the art because I posted it online before. So, um, but yeah, so that's up in my daughter's, and it's Squee and Bolas. I mean, those are two of the main people that come up on the show i would say two of the main characters that come up a lot on the show i have i have noticed bolus <laughs> actually that's actually and i know that because that's actually how this actually all started because i sent you those uh those book islands for your bolus deck yes. which is i love them yeah I've, i just got to play the deck on camera last night or not we didn't record but we played with um some webcam edh oh that's awesome yeah uh, so, um, so I, I did want to ask, you know, kind of looking at this with it being your mission, kind of to get these cards into people's hands, is there a specific thing that you would like us to do for giving this away? So the, the, the big thing that I would like to do is I would make, like to make this as simple as possible. Um, and so I, I would say probably what I would ask is that your when you post this uh, when we post i would say we'll post the deck list online and whoever uh comments and follows both me and goblin lore pod uh would be entered into the drawing and uh will when is this episode going to be going up this episode will be going out Wednesday of this week is the plan. Okay. Wow, yeah. that's awesome. Okay, so I would say I want to make sure that people have time. Uh, I would say give it maybe uh, between when this episode goes out and give it two weeks. That and good. then from there, uh, and it's just a comment and follow. I don't want to make anything too crazy. Yep. And uh, then... Maybe you and I, once we have the drawing, yep. uh, for whoever wins, because I, I don't want it to be a buy-in thing. Like I want this to be again something simple. Uh, once we can figure out the best way to get the cards to the people, especially if you want to add some cards in. Yep. Um, but I'm probably gonna sh- if I'm probably gonna want to ship the deck out just because I want to cover those shipping costs for the um, for the winner because. Shipping on a deck and a deck. So, oh, one other thing on this. This is not just a stack of cards. Uh, this deck is fully sleeved in Dragon Shield sleeves. Oh, awesome. Um, and it's coming in a uh, in a deck box as well. A 100 plus deck box. Cool. And, and because I... Did... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Because, yeah, I, I, again, I want this to be playable. I want them to be able to enjoy this. And that's what I was going to say. I was going to say that, you know... Um... We, we're we making this as simple to enter as possible. One thing I would really encourage, if you're somebody that has a lot of decks already and you do win, we don't mind whoever enters. I really would push for an encouragement of maybe like using this deck as a way to kind of hook somebody in or using, if you decide to keep this and this is a new deck of yours, maybe passing this on, passing one of your decks on, kind of just this idea that 
I really love this idea of kind of, we want to get this into the hands of people to play magic. And especially mm-hmm. that we both, I think we can say this is like, we love this format. I mean, this is basically the only magic I play anymore is, is EDH. Yeah. So. And I think that we can take back uh, some more positivity and pay it forward within the format. And I really love that. That I do think that this should be something that should be, if not given, but to ha- like have this be a deck that once we're playing in stores again, that you you bring with you in case there's someone there that doesn't have a deck, that type of thing. Um, but yeah, uh, I I think that would be amazing. And I'd say so. It'll be two. So the drawing will be final. Uh, two weeks from this when Wednesday, assuming the episode goes up on time. Yep, <laughs> that's always a good. That's always a good. <laughs> and I will let people know if it doesn't. <laughs> and and that's it's not a rip. I understand that. Uh, I, as someone, the father of three daughters, having kids, and we're doing this as a hobby. And I think sometimes people forget that. And I want to make sure that, but I want to also make sure that we're just getting people as as much of an opportunity to win this deck as possible awesome so um yeah so chris thank you so much for joining me um tonight and like i said now what you guys are going to be hearing is the rest of part two of the episode on psychographics and personality traits so before we move on to kind of talk about one more element to how this really impacts the this development of this i do want to give credit to um they're actually, uh, so I believe it is Lori um, Creed was the one who first came up with Mel. So uh, Mark Rosewater expanded on them in his article, uh, especially in 2015. But in his original one, we talked about Matt Kavoda, but there was also somebody that had originally proposed, Lori Cheers, sorry, who was somebody that took kind of um, it during a future site preview. And it makes sense that that is when Mita Melvin became an article that he did, Laurie Cheers did, uh, because it really is, uh, I just like this idea that based on the fact that we've been talking about that block yeah. making sense for Melvin, that that is where all of a sudden it was kind of like, we're getting broader than really these original components to it. I think we've we've covered these pretty well. Um, there is a lot sort of written about these, and if yeah. you're interested, we're going to drop um, some of the articles that could get, let you read a little bit more in depth, kind yeah. of uh, more in depth. And I would say that the, the the one last thing is kind of this idea that, that so far, this is where I don't know where Mark Rosewater is. I have not seen an update since the 2015. Um, he believes that Vorthos and Mel are, at least at this point, said that they are not psychological in origin, but aesthetic in origin, origin, and they focus on how players appreciate elements of the game. And he said, you know, how are these different? Aren't aesthetics an element of psychology? Uh, and he uses an art museum kind of analogy. I actually do think that we are... I am going to say that that... I think those lines are more and more blurred than they used to be. Um, that there is not necessarily a reason to not think that these aren't psychological profiles when it comes to magic. So I'm dropping that as the controversial statement of the cast today. All right. I'm just going to let you go with that. I, guess <laughs> I don't have anything to add to that. Well, it's just this idea that, you know, like, uh, I mean, there's been formats created that really, t- you know, that even if it's there for fun and how, you know, magic has grown to the fact that the community owns a lot and the community drives a lot of things. And this is, you know, the, the format of EDH came from judges. Um, and I would say that there is the format of vintage artists constructed, a yeah. format where you have to have every card in the deck, including basic lands, be illustrated by the same artist. And yep. That is a deck construction, and it is a, a you know, even within that, <laughs> you your have, way of building. You have can, your, your Vorthos. Or you, you, well, a, it's, it's a, it's a Vorthos heavy. But the thing is, is, again, I approached that personally from a Mel perspective where it was an interesting mechanical challenge. And then within that community, you have your spikes, 
And then you have, you know, your people who are not spikes. <laughs> you are looking for the combo decks that you can build. You have you have the people who, like me, are just more, I want to just put some fun things together that I think are pretty. Yeah. Oh, I mean, there literally is kind of the orange chant Isochron Scepter combo, which yep. is a lockdown combo, is possible because of a promo card. You know, yeah. so like, it, it. I do think that there's a psychological element to the people who approach the game from that way and i think that that's why i wanted to introduce the dimensionality because i think looking at this is i think the more you try to categorize and categorize and categorize you actually end up with more problems so yeah these are very interesting as a way to kind of flexibly approach the game and i think that that's why a distinction between aesthetic versus psychological isn't as helpful for me but the fact that we had to actually already have an article that was like well here's what a hybrid looks like of it tells me that maybe it's just looking at things on dimensions is going to be more helpful descriptive rather than proscriptive which is going to bring us straight into the real world topic which is perfect because i'm going to segue us back to story stuff for just a second (laughs) i'm glad to be back it's great so because you're talking about the dimensionality of of these particular uh personality traits player player uh, characteristics and i want to mention very briefly that this happens like this has kind of already happened i guess i don't know if this was more community driven or wizards driven but talking about the color pie i know there's there's a lot there's a big conversation at least in magic twitter which is its own little um piece of the community but that was looking at color pie identity and people talking about their own personal color pie identity and it wasn't a I am this one color or I am exactly these two, but it was this dimensionality where it's, I am this, and and being in Twitter, they were using like emojis, but there were the five accepted emojis for the five colors and nobody, or at least I don't think very many people had zero of, of, of some colors, but it was this, you know, you might have five white and then like two red and then one green, one blue, blue and black or something, some different combination. And so that is a, already been a part of that conversation and i think that that is an is a good way to look at these concepts as well within the the magic community and piggybacking off of that um i i think that when we've talked about color pie we've talked about kind of that idea that you know for each color there are extremes and you know that we talk about the idea that that white's ideals at either extreme lead to very different results. Um, we've talked about this before with kind of wanting to look furthermore at somebody had mentioned. So after I did the anger episode that was came out last week, um, you know how would each uh, each how would each part of the color pie identify anger? We've done this a lot with our color pie episodes with kind of looking at um, flavor and looking at all of those, but it is even looking at, at the extremes of what each color does. There is kind of differences in among, in, in, in between them. And like you said, the overlap is it's, it's, it's blurry. Um, even us talking about the difference between what a guild is versus what it might mean to be red, black, if that's how you kind of identify. And even knowing with all of those, you're always kind of choosing the elements that are most like you. Yeah. And so, now we can segue into our real world topic. I mean, it's well, it's it's completely in line with our real world topic. Yes. I don't even think it was that much of a segue yeah. away from yep, that's it fair. all because it is much, it is a color pie discussion that we have used many times. Yep, and and was, I, I yeah, I think that's a, a an important thing to look at in these types of conversations because they happen all over the place. So you're talking about personality tests and things. And so I want to talk a little bit about the Myers-Briggs and there's so much in this and I don't want to go too deep because to be honest, I don't have that much to say about it one way or the other, but I, I will say that for me personally on, on a number of occasions I have, I have done the Myers-Briggs stuff at work and in, and in, um, with my my therapist when I was just getting diagnosed with my social anxiety and in a number of other settings. And for me, it has been a useful tool to help me build introspection tools myself. It has been a, it is, it has been a useful aid in building those introspection tools maybe um, because it's helped me to frame 
it's given me frames to look at myself because it's difficult to do. I mean, I, I, I mention this every so often in just about every context where I talk to people, but like, you know, we all only have one lens through which to look at the world and it can be very difficult to understand what that, how that lens is shaped and what that lens is exactly, because you can only look at things through it. And so this is one way to try to look outside of that to have or to have an outside look in if this makes sense it's giving you questions to answer that you may not have thought about yourself or that you may not have thought about consciously and it's forcing you to think about them consciously now to bring those decisions to the conscious level as opposed to making them subconsciously and as a person with social anxiety that was a big thing i i learned going through that 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 experience of of working on my anxiety i learned quickly just how much subconscious thinking that i was doing and how quickly my brain would just decide things or th work down these avenues because that's where i had gone every time before and by taking this forcing myself to answer these questions i had to turn off that automatic process and i had to work through those things um the this experience where it does where these don't work is 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 as Hobbes said kind of where they become proscriptive as opposed to descriptive when they when you take this test and the test tells you that you are this identity and that means you do x y and z that is putting you into a box and not giving you tools with which to examine yourself it's just telling you what you should be and that is not helpful that is yeah, so so let's potentially I, harmful. Yeah, and I would say that you know, th so the Myers Briggs is something that is still used by some psychologists. Now, I will say I think it is used in certain um, domains and certain types of psychology more than others. I will say, you know, so for instance, at the the VA, I have never given, nor do I know how to give a Myers Briggs. Um, it is not a tool that I have ever used for assessment or for anything else. Now, personally, I've taken it. Uh, I actually first took it in high school, which is, I think, where a lot of people find uh, themselves maybe experiencing it for the first time, or at least something like this. And it was kind of, you know, a lot of this came out of vocational theory and personality theory, which was the idea that, you know, this would give you people with scores similar to yours or that had the same code type as you, would be more like, you know, like these are the jobs that you would be a better fit for. And I think that part of the issue with the Myers-Briggs is it is it is exactly what you said. Where it tends to fall apart is in its predictive abilities. So what people kind of, what it has turned into or is used for at times is to kind of like, you get your four letter code. It's based on these four dimensions. Each of these four dimensions has two sub-dimensions within them, and you get a score for each of those four, and it gives you a four-letter code, and those tell you about yourself. And um, It puts you into one of 16 boxes. One of 16 boxes. And I think what's in, we're down to boxes. And yep. the problem being that um, from a predictive standpoint, it does very, very poorly. That's why it's criticized. Um it is oftentimes called kind of the, the horoscope of the pseudoscience or the horoscopes of the intellectual. For a lot, I remember when I started doing online dating, people would list their Myers-Briggs profile type in their dating profile as if that would give me a lot of information. Now, to be fair, it probably did, just maybe not in the way that people wanted it to. It was kind of like when I would go on a date and somebody would be like, oh, you're a psychologist. I wonder what you're psychoanalyzing about me right now. And I was like, well, I wasn't, but now I am. So, <laughs> like, I guess. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it's where things have uses as tools versus where things are being used as a, like you said, as a end-all, be-all. Yeah. Um, and and that's where I think my my last experience with this has it actually was funny it had a combination of both it literally was both sides, um, because this was at work I think the the department that I I've been working in for for several years it was actually 
I think six months before I joined, they all went through Myers-Briggs tests. They all, and then they did a big department thing because the, the point of it, the goal of that was not to assign people into specific boxes and tell you that this is what you are. But what it was trying to do is it was trying to teach everybody, we all are different. We have different dynamics and we work differently. And so just because this person doesn't engage with things in the way that you do, doesn't mean that they are trying to be rude. Doesn't mean that they are, you know, like ignoring you. This is just how they operate. And so like as a tool to do that, I think it was really useful. Um, when I went through it most recently was was last year, they decided to kind of revisit three years later. And so being one of the people who was new in the department, I took the whole test and then was did the whole classroom with the entire department. And um, taking the test actually was, I thought, pretty good because after we took the test, then I sat down with someone from the training department to go through the results. And he didn't just say, here is your four letters. Here is your box that you are in. And this is what it says about you. Um, said we walked through each of the four categories and he talked about what both sides are a little bit and then says, according to you know the results, this is where you are. But then that page didn't just say, you know, one giant letter in the middle of it, they broke it down into five or six categories within that. And they showed a continuum of where I scored between the two categories. And so the the most dramatic one, I think, one that I think was the most interesting was the introvert versus extrovert. I, I am an, I consider myself an introvert, like very much, I love to socialize. I'm an outgoing introvert, but I need to recharge by myself. And this thing corroborated that where on certain categories, I was very introverted, but then on like outgoing, I was very much on the extrovert side. And so you saw on the total, this thing says, you know, your total score says introvert, but within these subcategories, it, it, it tells a more complete picture. So what's funny to me about you talking about it from that perspective and being shown that way, when I did this in high school, uh, we did it in like my senior year class, it was like a career development and life development class. And we had to like learn to score them ourselves. And we kind of saw that. Mm -hmm. and, and basically what I found was that I, I scored in such a way that one point either direction pushed me to extrovert or introvert. Um, based on everybody who's known me in my entire life, I am perceived as an extrovert. Um, and there is a lot of elements of to me that are very extroverted and exactly we've, this is a topic that we have covered on this show many, many times. Uh, the idea of an extroverted introvert or an introverted extrovert, even that it, both exist. And the idea was that, you know, it was almost like the testing was acknowledging that I could score along a continuum, but the goal of it was to then put me into a category, right? Like a cutoff with no no real necessarily discussion or reason behind it and uh, exactly. one, thing I, one thing that I will say is like they, these these develop these elements that are being used here um, that were went into the Myers Briggs are based into like the, the what's called the big five um, when it comes to personality characteristics which have been better they they have a lot more of a kind of like psychometric properties that show that that the five per big perfect personality traits um do have some better characteristics like there there is kind of validity and reliability is a lot better than the Myers-Briggs but the idea is that you've said like, like one of the things that originally that was the the push for something like the Myers-Briggs was saying that your personality is your personality and it doesn't change yeah right and, and that was part of that was kind of the other side of this was once we kind of got that individual talk done did the whole classroom with the entire department and it was it was a different person from the training department and that's basically what they said like they came in and said oh yeah so you take this test and this is supposed to show now they also framed it and i liked how they, they framed this as preferred method as opposed to as, or preferred tools as opposed to this is who you are on a deep core and personal level um like everybody has their sort of introvert extrovert tools everyone has sort of the judging perceiving there's was it intuition and regardless if you if you're interested in the myers-briggs there there's so many resources about it out there i'm sorry i don't have it handy but sensing, so like the, int, uh, intuition and sensing judging perceiving thinking feeling extroversion yeah. introversion so like those all exist in everybody but you might prefer to use this tool over that tool but then that same person like 
said in their next breath, yes, and this is exactly who you are and you never change or it never changes. And it's like, well, literally mine changed. I, I was two of my four letters changed when I took this test for this thing at, at work, but there was a five year gap. The, the test that I had taken previously was literally session one, session zero in essence with my, my therapist. And so this was me before I was diagnosed with my social anxiety and was just starting to talk to someone about those experiences, actually before, literally even before I started talking about those experiences. So of course, a lot has changed for me to some degree. And like the point is, but even there within those two letters, I knew both tests, I was very close to the middle, like you were talking about Hobbes. And so it's like, naturally, these tests are different tests. They're going to ask slightly different questions. They're going to ask very different questions. Sometimes, even if they're trying to get at the same thing, there's always going to be a little bit different way of how they, this is just me conceptual or me, me philosophical philosophizing perhaps but like there's no way that you're going to get exactly the same from two different tests there's just even if i sat down and took one and then i took a completely different myers-briggs test my my number score is going to shift slightly because that the questions are just different and, and one thing i'll say too is what has also come out of this just to, this is a, a weird like Sorry, just weird. No, no, this is because this is a niche thing that kind of mentioned because you mentioned the the different ones. Theoretically, the Myers-Briggs is a specific like own propriety test. Mm. So taking it years apart, it should be the same test, not the same results necessarily. It actually should be the same test. The problem is because it's proprietary, tons of people make Myers-Briggs type tests okay. with all different questions. I mean, but I think that's what is interesting is they're all purporting that these things are the same. I mean, I think this is where you start seeing how we can agree that a lot of these things that go into the Myers-Briggs are dimensions that, that are, are, are real. Like yeah. extroversion, introversion is, is a, is a thing, you know, like and, what, what that means is, is a, is probably a element that goes into us, how we approach are we more, you know, logical or are we more based on our emotions when we make a decisions? The problem is that we're running into is this prescriptive mm-hmm. element to it. Yeah. And that the conversation around it isn't talking about these things and trying to to give people tools around these. But the conversation is, oh, you're in this box. So that means you X. Because the, again, like the follow-up as part of that thing was we broke into groups for all these dimensions and it was like, okay, introverts go over here, extroverts go over there and talk about what you want the people in the other group to know about you. It's like, okay, I understand the goal of teaching. There are different ways to approach things. Cause like they talk about deadlines is, is one of my favorites. It was like, okay, so we have to do, you know, we have to write our reviews by this day what when are you guys going to start it and and the, the where i fit is kind of the oh uh probably less like the same week that it's due as opposed to other people it's like well you can start working on it a month beforehand they they open up the thing to go in and start working on it so that's when they start working on it is a month beforehand and it's like just because you're doing this differently doesn't mean that it's it's wrong um it's just that you do things differently like i said that aspect i think is really useful these conversations around the the different approaches to things because these are helping people to build those tools of introspection to look at themselves and 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 to better understand themselves to look at other people and understand other people and build some empathy but also that can help you to understand yourself too if for no no other ways you can start to build like I, this is how I thought of it um, when I when I first started um, working on my social anxiety and first started getting therapy. Like the the most useful things for me were talking about my experiences and hearing other people talk about theirs. Because even if their experiences were wildly different than mine, I was spend I was putting a lot of time and effort into mapping my mental landscape. And if I could sketch things out by negative, say nope, this these experiences do not fit my experiences that helped too because i was able to kind of start to sketch out what was there and what wasn't there i and this this was is that a tangent? Want... <laughs> was that no, 
so one thing I want to say too is it makes a lot of sense is the problem becomes things like Myers-Briggs are still used in hiring practices. They're still used in these team building exercises and not everybody is doing them from an introspection tool. There mm-hmm. is value in some of these, you know, even the ones that I don't necessarily use myself or agree with, I think can have value, but the value is how they are being used. When yeah. you were using these as a screening tool, when you're using something like the the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MMPI, which is another big one, especially in the state of Minnesota where it was developed. But I mean, it is it is a huge one that over the years actually has been refined because it used to be that what it did, the original versions of that, if anybody's ever seen it, is there are different domains and whatever two you scored highest on would give you a code type. And then that would tell you which mental health diagnoses you were more likely to have. Well, they have now moved away from that and realized that what we're looking at is a dimensional approach to the fact that like all of these things are things that you can score high or low on. And it's not just the top two are going to be your defining characteristics. They're being used as more of a tool to introspect versus a tool to just diagnose or to use for determining who will be a good fit for a job or not. Um, Part of one of the ones that we do right now is uh, I do voc testing with people. And when I'm teaching it to our psychology interns, it's telling them, this is how I use it. Like there's a theory that underlines vocation, like that looks at how, what you're interested in and broad categories of, you know, are you somebody that is more realistic? You like hands-on jobs that are really kind of practical and common sense, or do you enjoy art and self-expression? It's less to do with those and more to, to like, realize that you do have preferences and we also ask like questions about environment do you prefer an environment that you are you know in a cubicle alone or do you prefer an open workspace where you're talking to people it's to be when i give the results to people i don't just hand them a paper and say these are the jobs you should be researching it is we need to look at what of these elements are the jobs that we're looking for what are the common things that are jumping out that are actually a good fit for you this test is going to help us narrow because there's hundreds and hundreds of career fields. And if we spend all of our time just blanket shotgun approaching it, we're not going to improve anything. So if we know that there are certain elements that you have at least identified as being interesting to you, we're just narrowing this pool so that it is manageable enough. So it's a tool. It's not a decision. Yeah. And, you know, I think now that I'm, I'm thinking about this and we're talking about the mental health aspect and things too, I think one of the, the reasons that this is so important to me, like looking at it, looking at these tools this this specific way is because people are a lot more complex than 16 boxes. People are a lot more complex than three psychographics or five, you know, colors. There is a lot of five psychographics. Well, five psychographics. Come on well, now. Two aesthetics. Well, I've already told you. We're we're leading the revolution on the show today. That's the point, Hobbs. That this is <laughs> that that we people are much more complex than this. And and one of the things is like I didn't get my social anxiety diagnosis until I think I was 27. Because for a long time, first of all. I had no idea that it was strange to feel physically sick to your stomach when you talk to a stranger. Um, I, you know, just some random person at the bus stop. And I didn't understand, my understandings of mental health were that I didn't fit this, you know, stereotypical representation. I, you know, the panic attacks. I didn't think I had a panic attack because I didn't need a paper bag to breathe into because that was all I knew about panic attacks because that's all that was in popular culture. And so this, I think, is is a similar thing where we talk about, well, there's these 16 boxes and you're in one of these. And it's like, but people are more complex than that. And if our conversation is only ever, here is your picture of what exists, and you don't fit that, well, then you go, oh, well, you're out of luck. And it's it's like, it's so important to have these conversations to help people to be able to understand themselves. Yeah. No, I, so the last thing that I had put down into our show notes to talk about for today, actually, is related to this um, in, in a way that takes it even beyond personality traits and how they're being used in a job setting or, uh, you know, how people use them to describe themselves on a dating app or how they're being used so descriptively and so kind of um, pigeonholed or kind of 
to define something, to give things classifications, because we like classifications. I mean, we like taxonomies. We like to be able to put things in boxes, and it's part of how we arrange the world. And it makes sense, I mean, to shortcut. And it's, yeah, it can be helpful for building knowledge and understanding, but the problem is when you when you stop there, you you miss out on so much. And it can be harmful in so many ways. And so one way that it can be harmful, actually, that's, wow, look at you. Wow. We, 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 you know, people don't realize this show is not scripted. Um, no, but um, the, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the manual of mental health disorders. And it is the framework that is used for a lot of psychology and psychiatry. And there's, there's reasons for that. Um, you know, there are problems with that as a setup because exactly what you just described is social anxiety has a list of all the things that even now a lot of this stuff is really based in research. This is based in randomized clinical trials of people that identify or people that have anxiety versus not. And a lot of this stuff is very well researched. And at the same time, the clinical pictures are not discrete and are not easy to classify. So when you talked about the idea that you don't breathe into a paper bag, when you look at social anxiety, if you were to bring up social anxiety in the DSM, there is a list of, say, 15 qualifications. You have to have X number, and that is based on doing factor analysis, that people with X number of these symptoms look differently when you look at long-term outcomes than people with only two. So that is the base idea of it. It's not perfect. It's not easy. It's for psychology to have a shared language, for psychiatrists to kind of lean towards medications that have been shown to be helpful for some people versus not. But at the end of the day, it means that this is why people can be like, well, I have depression and my depression looks like X, Y, and Z. And somebody else says, I have major depressive disorder and mine looks like A, C, F. And they're both right. Um, now, from a perspective of looking at broad, discrete categories like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, a lot of this stuff is well-researched. And like I said, there have been kind of cutoffs, but it, but still, even to look like that is not this person with depression is going to look like this person with depression. And it's our job as psychologists to understand that just because I see a, 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 a diagnosis of that doesn't mean that I know what that person's symptoms are or even what they really need to do. I know that mood component is going to be a major part of it. Now, where this becomes very icky, in my opinion, and always has been, is when it comes to what are known as the personality disorders. So this is this idea that we have kind of personalities that are actually maladaptive. And um, it used to be that they were considered to be on a different, what is called axis than your major depressive disorder and your social anxiety. They were their own category, but they were maladaptive personality characteristics. And these are ones that would be like, they would be like our psychographic profiles in some ways, in the sense that they're, they develop because of personality characteristics and traits that are part of your genetic makeup, part of how you were raised, part of your experiences. They're very hard to change because they are patterns that have been there for most of them can't even be diagnosed until adulthood. So they have to have been set in personality types. Um, the most famous of these would probably be uh, the category. What's really funny is they were bro broken into categories and the category that most people know of are cluster B, which is antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, and histrionic. So those are the ones that I think most people kind of think of, and they, they were all kind of in that. These are the ones that are well known because these are the ones that we tend to see portrayed, or we tend to see people with these characteristics. Um, when the manual underwent its most recent update, so we went from version four to version five, the original proposal was to do away with these categories. It was to do away with personality disorders. Um, now, it wasn't to do away with the idea that there are maladaptive personality traits or maladaptive personality styles. It was to do away with this categorical approach to it because it really wasn't that helpful. 
So I'll give you an example. Um, I mentioned those that cluster of personality dis disorder characteristics that include antisocial personality disorder. I mean, uh, borderline narcissistic and histrionic. So borderline personality disorder is one that is known for there is a treatment that is very helpful for it, dialectical behavior therapy, but it's really this like unstable emotions, um, kind of switching. A lot of people confuse it with manic or bipolar disorder or manic depression because there's personality, there's like mood swings, and there's a lot of like just push and pull is a lot of what you hear, for like wanting people, not wanting people. Um, and it's in the same one as antisocial, which is, you know, uh, antisocial people know, right? Like that's what people think of when they think of a psychopath or a sociopath. Don't know really right from wrong, don't care, it's about their needs first. Well, they're in the same cluster. If you look at them, Alex, I'm going to put you on the spot here. What do you think most men with personality disorders between those two are diagnosed with? Oh, I have no idea. I'm sorry, Hobbs. So between antisocial and kind of that borderline kind of like, the borderline is seen as kind of almost that like hysterical, like self-cutting. Antisocial um, is like your... Yeah, I would. I would. I my my initial guess, just my gut guess, would be the antisocial. Yeah, you're right. There is a bias in diagnosing where most men are, if they're in these categories, are going to be diagnosed with antisocial. Women with similar presentations are going to be diagnosed with borderline. Because there isn't a nice, easy way to just put somebody's personalities into these characteristics. There's problems with doing that. So. The proposal was to take and actually just have dimensions of personality. So there were a lot of elements. You know, we talked about like the five big five, which is kind of what the Myers-Briggs was based on. But it was to have those um, looking at even larger models, seven factors. But it was to take in some ways all of the elements that had gone into the personality disorders, uh, emotional you know, so like emotion regulation, so emotional stability or the ability to kind of, if people don't know what that means, emotion regulation is your ability to regulate when you have emotions. I kind of talked about it on anger management last time, but it is that idea that when you have intense emotions, you're able to regulate them. Otherwise they take over and they're expressed in harmful ways. So we would just say, okay, well, we're looking at all of these personality problems and it does seem that emotion regulation is something that is significant to measure. But we don't want to just say you either have problems or not. We're going to put it on a dimension and we're going to rate everybody. Like if we were doing an intake or an assessment on somebody, we're going to take all of these different domains that we think are important. Important. So that could even be extroversion, introversion. That could be emotion regulation. That could be, you know, reality testing. Whatever it is, we're going to rate everybody on dimensions, related to those and then use those as an introspective tool to see where do the problems kind of or the difficult parts of a person's personality lie sadly that got scrapped which i show think shows just how much it is at play here and in power here that the fact is we had the ability to to introduce this like it was ready to be rolled out and it got pulled it got scrapped and there's a lot of reasons that went into that but it is that i think that there is kind of a human desire to categorize mm -hmm. and to like hope i mean i think this is in some ways this is our magical thinking as people that then we would have kind of a horoscope or we would have a well this is the you know we would have a boilerplate or a template to how to act and how to live our life yeah i mean and, and this is this is a thing that it goes in so many dimensions, like uh, direction that we're not really ready to talk about in this episode, but, but gender and sexual identities are, are things like this too, that for a long time, you just fit in this box and that's where you're supposed to be. But it's like, it's a lot more complicated than that. And the fact that these conversations, well, now they're happening, but that they weren't happening at all. Is these conversations still aren't very widespread now, but the, it may, has made it so difficult for people to understand themselves in all these dimensions of life. And well, hopefully the more that we can have these conversations, the more it helps people to understand themselves.
And that's our show for today. You can find the host on Twitter. Hobbs Q can be found at Hobbs Q. And Alex Newman can be found at Mel underscore Chronicler. Send any questions, comments, thoughts, hopes, and dreams to at GoblinLorePod on Twitter or email us at GoblinLorePodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support your friendly neighborhood gobsmugs, the cast can be found at Patreon.com slash GoblinLorePod. Opening and closing music by Vindergotten, who can be found on Twitter at Vindergotten or online at Vindergotten.Bandcamp.com. Logo art by Steven Raphael, who can be found on Twitter at Steve Raphael. Goblin Lore is proud to be presented by Tipsters of the Coast as part of their growing Vorthos content, as well as magic content of all kinds. Check them out on Twitter at HipstersMTG or online at HipstersOfTheCoast.com. Thank you all for listening. And remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers. <laughs>